Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Before the sentencing guidelines, there really wasn't much out there. There were some industrial organizations that, that put together some frameworks for companies to, to have compliance programs. In some industries, like the defense industry, there, there was some nascent. That was Eric Moorhead, Director of Advisory Services at LRN. Eric and I visit about the 30th anniversary of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. Eric has worked on the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines Commission, has an intimate knowledge of the Commission and the Sentencing Guidelines, and is a true geek on this topic. It's important for every compliance practitioner to understand your rights and obligations under the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. So I hope you will take a deep dive into the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines at 30 with myself and Eric Moorhead on the FCPA Compliance Report. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And in fact, welcome to 2023. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have back with me, it's been way too long, Eric Moorhead, Director of Advisory Services at LRN. I think I've known Eric probably as long as I've known anyone in compliance. And he's been on his own. He's been with the U.S. Sensing Commission. He is now with LRN and has a wide variety. And he did a lot of compliance work, although we didn't call it compliance even before then. Eric, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Eric, the reason I wanted to have you on the pod is you wrote an article in December of 2022, which was in Law 360, really celebrating, I'm going to call it celebrating the 30th anniversary or birthday of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. And you put a lot of statistics in there and talked about their impact, but I really wanted to just maybe visit with you about why this was perhaps the seminal event for compliance, why it created a compliance function or how it worked to create a compliance function, but more importantly, how the sentencing guidelines have literally their concepts around the world. With that, could you tell us what are the U.S. sentencing guidelines and what were they originally envisioned to be? 
Sure. At the beginning, though, I probably should make the caveat that I am a homer for the U.S. Sentencing Commission and the guidelines since I was a staff member there. So I'm a true believer. But the report that we're talking about, the the commission just put out a couple months ago, celebrating the 30 years of the organizational sentencing guidelines, I think gives you a lot of not only data, but background as to why this is important. The guidelines started with the Sentencing Reform Act which was passed bipartisan back in the old days when we had bipartisan legislation, a a bipartisan effort to try to make sure that we had consistency and parity in sentencing across the United States. The problem that cropped up in federal sentencing over the years was if you were charged with a particular federal offense in, say, the Southern District of Texas, where where we're located, or actually we're in the Western District now, but where we used to be located in Houston, and and you were charged with a similar offense, say, in Southern District of New York or somewhere else, there was a fair chance that the sentences that would be made it out by the district court judge in those cases, all things being equal, criminal history, the conduct involved, that they would there would be disparity between sentences. And it worked both ways. There were those on one side of the aisle that felt that the sentences being made it out in certain courtrooms was were too high, and some folks felt that in certain jurisdictions the sentences were too high. It was just an inconsistency. And that drove a bipartisan effort to put together the Sentencing Reform Act, which, among other things, created the U.S. Sentencing Commission to study and put together sentencing guidelines for federal judges to use when they were sentencing both individuals and organizations. When the commission came together in the late 80s, they promulgated the original sentencing guidelines for individuals, but it took them a few years, about five additional years, four and a half, five years, to put together the organizational sentencing guidelines. The guidelines affecting organizations, companies, and other organizations came along later in 1991. So that's what we were celebrating the 30th anniversary of. So technically 2021, but report came out just this year. Over that 30 years, about 5,000 organizations, 4,900 and some change, have been sentenced in federal court. And that's going to be in local federal district courts in front of district court judges. And that's all over the United States. Although primarily, if you look at the statistics, and this is no, most of those 5,000 cases happened in larger jurisdictions, in, in cities like Houston, Chicago, New York, Boston, Los Angeles, etc. But there have been organizational cases all, all across all of the districts in the United States. Those cases have primarily been in the financial jurisdiction and environmental crime jurisdiction, but they run the gamut. So what's... How do you think they were viewed by courts or the DOJ when they were originally promulgated, Eric? The DOJ has switched opinions, and obviously this is in part due to the fact that you have different administrations and different sets of leadership in the DOJ over 30 years. But for the most part, the DOJ tended to support the sentencing guidelines overall. I think there was the general feeling that they also, the DOJ, as a rule, wanted predictability in sentencing rather than no idea where a judge might land. In the federal sentencing process for both individuals and organizations, the U.S. Probation Office usually, unless in some circumstances doesn't, but in most cases, will prepare a pre-sentence report, which post-sentencing guidelines would also do a rough calculation of what the sentencing guideline range would be for sentencing. That provided some context and some guardrails for for what the range was and what the sentence ought to be. In most cases, I'm a former criminal defense attorney, so again, full disclosure, I might be a little biased. In most cases, those pre-sentence reports tended to favor the position of the government. Not always, but often. 
And so I think generally the prosecution, the U.S. attorney's offices around the country and Maine Justice supported the sentencing guidelines. And that wasn't always the case on the, in the defense bar, right? Because uh, particularly for individuals, you're looking to try to mitigate any impact on your client as much as possible. But I think overall, the, the goal, as I said in the beginning, was to try to produce some sort of parity and reduce disparities. And to a great extent, the sentencing guidelines, I think, accomplished that. Some might argue that sentencing guideline, recommended sentencing guideline sentences were too high, particularly one area that that, that was became quite controversial and there were reforms made was around crack cocaine sentencing. Some of you may have seen that in the news over the last I think five five to six years there have been reforms made. So it's not a perfect system, but it's, I think, overall, both the prosecution and the defense have the parity, the lack of disparity to probably be to the benefit of most of the parties involved. Eric, one of the things in your article was the number of organizations that have been sentenced under the guidelines. It was a little under 5,000, but I think we both believe that the impact of the guidelines is far beyond those 5,000. So I was wondering if you might give us your thoughts on how the sentencing guidelines have really impacted you and I up to this day, for instance. No, I think that's absolutely true. Before the sentencing guidelines, there really wasn't much out there. There were some industrial organizations that, that put together some frameworks for companies to, to have compliance programs. In some industries, like the defense industry, there, there was some nascent guidelines out there, but there was nothing universal. And so when the sentencing commissioners and the staff members of the commission in the late 80s and early 90s set out to put together these sentencing guidelines, I think the general philosophy around sentencing companies, sentencing organizations was how, how big is the fine going to be? And there wasn't much thought and there wasn't a the philosophical opinion, if you will, that organizations ought to have compliance or any other mandates issued by courts on their behavior. The idea, say, pre-1990 was, okay, we have an organization, they pled guilty or they've been found guilty. You know, what's the fine going to be? What's the restitution going to be? You know, it was a dollars and cents equation and not necessarily much thought given to What's the future hold for this organization? What kind of reforms do we want to see this organization take on the governance side and on the compliance side to ensure these things don't happen anymore? And so that's a philosophical difference of, I think, what generally existed before. And that's not to say regulators and, and, and legal professionals and others who were lobbying for these changes within organizations and outside organizations before that, but there wasn't a cohesive standard that everybody could point to. And after that, the sentencing guidelines became that gold standard, the seven hallmarks that we that we all learn when we first uh, step dip our toes into this area. That that didn't exist prior to this, and so it became a touchstone. And the main takeaway that the commission posits in this report is that's the biggest impact, not those five thousand organizations that got sentenced, although that was important but the many hundreds of thousands of organizations that have adopted these standards based on those initial promulgated guidelines back in 91. So those guidelines, Eric, pretty, pretty quickly expanded into something beyond just information which would be used as a calculation for a fine and penalty or, or perhaps a sentence. And I'm going to point to the Caremark decision out of the Delaware state courts. Caremark was not a decision by the Delaware Supreme Court, interestingly enough. It was the Delaware Court of Chancery, which is their trial court. 
Yet in the opinion, the original Caremark opinion, that court pointed to the U.S. sentencing guidelines, specifically with the guidelines language around the role of a board as part of its justification for putting a legal obligation on boards of directors of Delaware corporations going forward. So there, this seemed to me to be beyond simply just a criminal penalty issue, and now we're moving towards a good governance issue. So I was wondering if I could use that incredibly long-winded lead-in to ask or see how can we explore or how should we think about how company and others, other governments, have used the sentencing guidelines as really a basis to think about good governance or maybe even just business organizations. Yeah, no, I think the beauty of the guidelines that it sets the floor, the Sentencing Commission has not really revisited the sentencing guidelines other than two amendments in 2004 and 2010. In fact, the last amendments were happened while I was there, now well over 12 years ago. So they, they remain consistent and constant, but they're the bedrock that other regulators and individual organizations and international organizations like the OECD, for example, when they put together their guidelines for what makes an effective compliance program, it mirrors the sentencing guideline standards. The DOJ guidance that we've spent countless hours talking about and plotting over over the past five years since the first ones came out. Those those guidelines are they specifically cite the sentencing sentencing guidelines in the in the text of that memo, but they're based on the principles that came out of the ninety one guidelines. And so they remain this kind of constant force out there. The other thing that, you know, and again Admittedly, I'm a homer, and I really believe that the sentencing guideline standards are really fundamentally important to to our profession. But the other thing that's true about the sentencing guidelines is they have the force of law. Now, granted, it only has the specific force of law on your organization if you're in front of a federal judge, but they get promulgated by a federally appointed commission. They go to the to to Congress, and Congress, if Congress doesn't act within 90 days, they become, the guidelines are enacted, and they have to be amended. They, there's a process that you have to go through. And as much as I love my friends at the Department of Justice, and as much as I'm excited every time they come out with a new memo, those memos could disappear tomorrow, depending on the administration that's in power. They are That's guidance only for their employees, for the prosecutors and other professionals at the Department of Justice. And while it behooves all of us to really pay close attention to what the Department of Justice is doing, it's not as permanent. And so there's there's a bedrock practicality to, to hewing to the organizational sentencing guideline standards for an effective compliance program because they are they have a permanence. And that has led them to be cited in so many different places, whether it's the C guidance here in the United States or the Department of Justice here in the United States or various other government, governmental and regulatory organizations overseas. It has become the gold standard, and I think that's fair. And that's submitted in this report, by the way. They take a look at international standards that have adopted those primary pieces of the sentencing guidelines throughout the years. Eric, you mentioned several times two major amendments to the sentencing guidelines in 04 and 2010. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit of detail of the what the changes were and what you understand the reasons for those changes. Sure. In, in 04, the, 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 there were some amendments made primarily in response to Sarbanes-Oxley. There were some necessary amendments that the that Sox required, but they also further defined some of the components that you needed to have in an effective ethics and compliance program. 
That includes training, the over, something you mentioned already, the oversight of the governing authority of the organization, whether that's a board of directors or a board of governors or whatever it might be. Because remember, when we talk about organizations, this is not only companies, but this can be universities. This can be government agencies. They're in that, in that five, group of 5,000 organizations that have been sentenced. They include government agencies, both local and, and states that have ended up having to plead guilty for violations of the law. So any organization that has a governing authority, there's governance abilities and oversight responsibilities that have been baked into the sentencing guidelines since the report, anonymous reporting mechanism that we're all familiar with that was reinforced in those amendments. The 2010 amendments were a little more nuanced. Primarily what we wanted to do there was to increase the, the carrot for organizations to have an effective program and getting credit, if you will, for an organization that maybe still had a violation of the law but was doing doing a reasonable and and taking effective steps to try to have a, an effective program because we know no matter what you do or the misconduct can still occur the people are going to find a way around systems and controls but for organizations that made the effort and could document a, a reasonable effort being made, the 2010 amendments tried to provide more incentive to do that, that you would get credit for having an effective program. You would get credit for coming forward if something was discovered internally before it was discovered externally. So those getting additional credit to improve programs and being proactive was really important. It has always been really important for both the commission and the Department of Justice for that matter. And that was the primary focus of the 2010 amendments was to try to further encourage that reporting. The second thing that the 2010 amendments did, which was really important, was strengthening the role of the person or persons that have the day-to-day -day responsibility for the program. So the, the boots on the ground. And to make sure that the boots on the ground had a, a mechanism by which they could report to the governing authority of the organization in the event of perceived uh, criminal misconduct and on a regular annual basis on the status of the program. So that uh, connection between the operational compliance program and the governing authority was also strengthened in 2010. Eric, how do you see the findings from this 30-year report really being something that can help compliance officers going forward? Again, as you mentioned at the top, and we don't probably want to bore everybody with too much data, there's a lot of great data in there. I would say that for those of us who are certainly somebody like myself who's a sentencing guideline nerd, there's nothing new in that data. It's the accumulation of what the trends we've seen following the data over 30 years. Things like the fact that most organizations that end up taking a conviction are in employee population size. The the vast majority of, the, of these organizations, 70% of them, have less than 50 employees. So you have really small organizations. And that's probably no surprise because we would expect that smaller organizations probably don't have much in the way of resources around their compliance programs. Perhaps haven't, if they're startups or smaller organizations, perhaps they have, unless they have an issue, they don't think about some of these controls. They don't think about having regular training. They don't think about having a, an effective code of conduct or some sort of reporting mechanism. That, so that's not too surprising. The other thing that's not too surprising is that federal courts have found since 1992 that almost 90%, 89.6% of organizations were found not to have, basically not have a program in place or certainly not have an effective program in place. Again, it makes sense that the organizations that get in the most trouble are those that have not invested. So I think that's helpful is you can show that data to the to to the stakeholders in your organization saying look 
this money that we're spending, this time that we're spending on this is really important. It keeps us out of this group that, that face the most serious consequences. It's not, for, particularly for an organization that is larger and growing, it's probably not a matter of if you're going to have a misconduct occur, but when. And so you know that's going to happen. You have an organization of human beings make mistakes and engage in misconduct, sometimes very intentionally, sometimes not so intentionally. So that's going to happen. The question is, what happens after that? And if you look at the data here, organizations that have prepared for that, we don't see it. We see the 5,000 organizations, 90% of which have been judged not to have, basically not have a program in place. What we're not seeing are those organizations that perhaps get involved in an investigation and it gets resolved otherwise. You know, there's a civil settlement or no settlement at all. The government determines that there's not criminal conduct, on, on, at least on the part of the organization, right? There might be individuals who still get prosecuted. But that's, so it's a combination of looking at what's here in the data from the Sentencing Commission and what's missing and extrapolating from that, that the conduct of caring about this, of putting resources and effort and time into a compliance program benefits an organization because they don't end up in this data set. So one of the things that has intrigued me about the compliance profession, Eric, is the evolution that I have seen. I moved into this field in 2007. But here we're really taking a 30-year retrospective, looking at guidance promulgated by the government, implemented by businesses, yet we've seen a couple of changes that you've talked about in terms of the amendments, which were influenced by facts on the ground, and we would have to point probably most pointedly to the whistleblowers or attempted whistleblowers at both Enron and WorldCom, but we also saw the 2010 amendment. In exploring this topic of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines with you, I see this evolution and perhaps not as immediate and long as you have with the Department of Justice or between practitioners and the Department of Justice commentators like yourself, but I still see a dialogue and I see evolution. Would you expect that review to continue by the Sentencing Commission and, if appropriate, take look at certain amendments down the road? I think so. And one area in particular that I know is something that you know you and uh, other practitioners have talked about over the years is maybe more guidance around what effective incentives would look like for a program. Because that's been in the sentencing guidelines for a couple decades now, but we don't really have a lot of guidance around that. And that is consistently, at least in my experience as a practitioner, that's consistently the most difficult thing to quantify, particularly for smaller organizations. And we know that from our data that smaller organizations are the ones that have the biggest risks here when you're talking about criminal prosecution and bad outcomes. So I can see I, I can foresee in a time down the road where the commission might revisit that and provide an application. In the sentencing guideline, there's the guidelines themselves and then there's application notes. And the application notes get into more detail. I could see the commission adding an application note based on public comment and research done around incentives and perhaps other parts of the of the seven hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines. There has to be interest from the public. And every year, the Sentencing Commission does solicit, usually in the spring and early summer, so it's coming up, opinion from the public at large about what the commission ought to do, what, they, what their priorities ought to be for the coming year. We are in a great space here because during the last administration, the last president did not appoint any sentencing commissioners. And so there was not a quorum. So the sentencing commission couldn't take any action for several of the past few years. There was, I think they were down to one commissioner actually, but now they have a 
full contingent of commissioners. So they and this, so this will be the first year, first amendment year in a few years where they can actually take action. So coming, if there's an interest from an organization like SCCE or individual practitioners to, to ask that they put certain things on their agenda, then they'll examine that. And then, they'll, then when they establish their priorities for the, for the year, they may assign staff to then investigate and seek further opinion, maybe have a public hearing. That's what we did in 2010 is we had a public hearing as well as soliciting public comment. And there can be changes. There's a process in, involved in it, though, and it takes either a commissioner or a group of commissioners that, on their own, in, on their own initiative, want to put something on the agenda, or enough force from the public to, to address those things. But I think there's room, certainly, to address things like incentives. Eric, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But I wanted to thank you again for being such a great resource on all things sentencing commission and sentencing guidelines. We're going to link to the Law 360 article in the show notes. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted to follow up with you directly or like any more information on the services you provide as Director of Advisory Services at LRN, what would be the best place for them to go? They can email me directly, eric.morehead, 10morehead at lrn.com, or go to our website and go to the Advisory Services tab there and uh, get, in touch with, get in touch with us there. But I'm happy if anybody has a question about sentence and guidelines, always happy to uh, have a conversation. Eric, thanks. It's been great to have you on. Okay. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where we reported on the LRN acquisition of compliance learning from Thomson Reuters. You can go to the firm's website that we've linked to in the show notes to find out more and how this acquisition will really position LRN going forward. I hope you'll join me in our next episode where we begin a special two-part series with the principles of the Texas Hill Country Advisors on the FTX scandal, where we look at it from a banking risk management perspective and from an investor due diligence perspective. I know you'll enjoy the next two episodes of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.